welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in through iTunes, Spotify. If you're watching on YouTube, please click the subscribe button, the bell for continued notifications so that you can see whenever I post new content, and a thumbs up if indeed this installment, episode, whatever you want to call it, has helped you. Don't forget to share as well. Check out the uh, Substack channel, joshsummer.substack.com. That's my newsletter. There is both free and paid subscription options there. Kind of a big episode today, I think. Um, I'm not sure. I have an outline here that, that I've worked up, and I'm not sure how long it is going to take to get through. Um, hopefully we can keep it under an hour. So that gives you kind of an idea of what we're looking at here in terms of length. Um, and it's an important, uh, subject. It's an important topic because it is, it is one that many people have had questions about and it is one concerning which there is much confusion. Uh, there is much, um, uh, contest and uh, so I think it would be good to to bring it up, and that is the Pactum Salutis in relation to the doctrine of the Trinity. <sighs> i got to have my coffee. So, uh, again, thank you for tuning in. Um, look, I know that in the doctrine of God uh, debate, uh, there is much disagreement. I just want to um, affirm my love for everyone involved and a desire that uh, we're able to, you know, come to a, a knowledge of the truth. My, my prayer is that uh, there would be some uh, measure of, of agreement reached at some point in uh, the midterm, at least. So I, um, I love you guys. Thanks for tuning in, and, and thanks for watching. I hope that this is helpful, even if you do disagree. Um, now, just before we get started here, there there are a lot of people who affirm the Pactum Salutis, and I'm saying that word, you're probably like, what does that even mean? Uh, there are a lot of people that believe it. There are also a lot of people, probably more than, than not, who reject the idea of a Pactum Salutis altogether. This is not, I, I will run through a little te uh, a textual section here where I will, I will justify the, the assertion or the affirmation of the existence of a covenant of redemption or a pactum salutis. Um, but the, really, the tone and tenor of this of this particular installment will, will, for the most part, assume its existence. We're just trying to wrestle with how to understand it in light of our doctrine of God, because I think that's where a lot of the confusion lies. Um, so we're going to work to make some important distinctions and... Um, and, and and some important uh, Trinity, and we're going to consider some important, you know, aspects of the doctrine of the Trinity that I think play in well to our understanding of the doctrine of the Pactum Salutis. So, what is the Pactum Salutis? That's where we have to start. Uh, again, there's probably all sorts of people asking, what in the world is that? Um, the the Pactum Salutis refers to a pact, a testament, or we would we could say a a covenant. Um, and in this case, you know, the Pactum Salutis is uh, the Latin moniker, um, the, the Pact of Salvation, for what we would call in English the Covenant of Redemption. And that's how it's been articulated um, throughout uh, English theological history, uh, going all the way back to the Puritans um, and, and even prior to uh, the late uh, Reformed Orthodox period. 
there was uh, consideration of the Pactum Salutis or of the Covenant of Redemption to one extent or another. Bavink gives a fair treatment of the Pactum Salutis um, and uh, John Owen as well as another resource. So um, it, it's it's not it, it's 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 a it's a refer, reformed theological distinctive. All right, and um, it, it's 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 really played heavily into an understanding and contextualization of the doctrines of grace, uh, you know, redemption in general, and uh, you know things like election and also uh, the atonement and the extent thereof. So the Pactum Salutis is a covenant, and it's called in English the covenant of redemption. Uh, and it serves a few different uh, purposes, uh, a few different goals. It's a way to art. It's it's a way to articulate. It's a crucial way, I think, to articulate the eternal plan of redemption according to a a trinitarian formula. And uh, and so it's it's crucial in that way. It's it, it it's bringing trinitarian theology into. Um, into the plan of redemption, and it's not only bringing Trinitarian theology into the plan of of redemption, it's actually also trying to understand how Trinitarian theology applies to the plan of redemption as it has unfolded, um, you know, uh, throughout and in history. Um, and so it, it's uh, it's a it's a it's a crucial way in which uh, we we can we can understand and talk about uh, God's eternal plan of redemption. We hear a lot about God's eternal plan of redemption. Unfortunately, modern Calvinism seems to uh, divorce the eternal plan of redemption from something like the Pactum Salutis or the Covenant of Redemption, and th- and that I think is is lamentable um, in many ways. And right here, I was actually just trying to because uh, this is not something I had figured into the outline. Uh, it's an afterthought, uh, but I'm trying here to uh, see if I can pull up. Okay, let's see. Trying here to to pull up some maybe uh, relevant uh, sections uh, that <clears throat> we can... Um, Pull from uh, Baptist history. Sorry, uh, trying to get there, not necessarily uh, articulating it that well, um, because this is a this is a confessional doctrine as well. So I'm just trying to figure out the best way to uh, to actually locate that. Um, and let's see here. Okay. Yeah, you see, um, you see it in chapter eight of the Second London Confession. I'm sorry that took me so long to get to. I should have had that located before I even began the show. Um, chapter eight uh, in the London Baptist, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1677, 1689, is uh, of Christ the Mediator. In the, in the very beginning of that chapter, paragraph one. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, 
and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Okay, so there's a, there's a clear affirmation there of an eternal covenant between father and son at minimal. And, um, and so this is a confessional doctrine as well. I think that's important to, to mention. Um, and, um, and you see the language of the confession is, 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 quite, is quite explicit and clear. This is the father making a covenant with the son. And it involves the election of the Son as mediator, or the choosing of the Son as mediator. And if you think of that in terms of election or a, um, uh, or a, a, a choosing before the foundation of the world, I think that can kind of help understand what's, what's being said there. I mean, we always say about believers, individual believers, that, you know, you are, if you are a, a true believer, you, you have been elect, you've been chosen by God since before the foundation of the world. Ephesians tells us, however, that we're chosen in Christ. And so it's, in, it's really in virtue of Christ's election of the Father, that God chose Christ, elected him to be mediator, that we can be redeemed in the first place. And that is what the covenant of redemption really has reference to. So, okay, so that's the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. I'm sure there's a parallel paragraph there in, in, the West, in the Westminster as well, and the Savoy. Although I'm not sure, you'll have to check. Do not take my word for it there. Um, so it, it's, a way of, it's a way to articulate the eternal plan of redemption. It, it also helps to articulate the eternal plan uh, of the triune God. To redeem. So uh, many times, what happens is in discussions uh, about God's decree, about election, is um, rarely is the Trinity, and I say this mostly in terms of of, of the discussions of laity. R- rarely, I think, at least in some circles, is the Trinity brought into that conversation. Um, and so, the covenant of redemption or the Pactum Salutis is a way. Uh, to articulate the eternal plan of redemption in triune terms. Um, and it, it, the covenant of redemption attempts to account for the, the, the giving and sending language in Scripture involving Father and Son. We'll see that here in a moment when we look at some texts. Um, and since that language implies pre-incarnate, that is, that is uh, something happening, something occurring, some operation or work that occurs prior to the, to the incarnation of the Son in time, uh, the covenant of redemption seeks to exposit the nature of, of what is going on prior to the incarnation. And so I think if we rightly understood, understand the covenant of redemption, uh, many times I think we see the covenant of redemption as kind of a hindrance to our doctrine of God. Um, and things like divine simplicity and divine immutability. But I think if, if, if the covenant of redemption is understood correctly, it can actually be more helpful in understanding the doctrine of God as it relates to the doctrine of God's works, the doctrine of God's economy. All right, so I think it can actually help uh, bolster those crucial, important distinctions that we make um, when looking at God as he is distinct from his, um, from his effects. Um, it, it, it helps to articulate the peculiarity of the Son's mission. Um, so the covenant of redemption uh, casts our attention upon 
the fact that it's the son being sent, right? It's not the father. It's the son being sent to become incarnate and to ultimately stand in the place of his people, bearing their sin, representing them federally uh, in a perfectly righteous manner as mediator and surety um, before the Father, so that his people, which the Father has given him, can be redeemed. All right, so the covenant of redemption helps to distinguish the Father and the Son in terms of missions. All right, and um, and I think that's one of the most useful aspects of the covenant of redemption, and 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 really uh, one of the reasons I'm 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 wanting to to do this episode is, um, I don't want people getting into the doctrine of God, and and then running into the issue of the covenant of redemption, and then just deciding to to jettison the covenant of redemption in light of what they understand of the doctrine of God because they can't see how that fits together. So what I'm trying to do here is to explain the place of the covenant of redemption as we consider theology proper as well. That we shouldn't consider our theology proper necessarily in conformity to the covenant of redemption, but that that we should understand the covenant of redemption of a particular way of articulating um, the, the really what amounts to the inseparable operations of the, the, the triune Godhead. Um, it also functions to bolster the doctrines of grace. The covenant of redemption has been used in times past to, to not only justify, but, 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 um, explain the, um, really the contextual underpinnings of the doctrine of grace, thinking of election, uh, God's decree, uh, election, um, the atonement, and so on and so forth. There is a um, condition, and there is a reward for fulfilling that condition, for, for the Son completing those conditions that the Father has given to him. Um, and in John 17, as we'll see here in a moment, Jesus articulates that in terms of the work God the Father has given him to do and to fulfill. So it, it functions to actually bolster and contextualize the doctrines of grace. I don't think the doctrines of grace make as much sense on their own apart from the covenant of redemption. I think the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis is, is crucial in giving a full-fledged account of, of the doctrines of grace. So it, it's helpful in that way as well. So the pactum salutis, the doctrines of grace, or the, uh, the doctrine of, of the covenant of redemption is an extremely useful doctrine. And uh, it's, it's, it's useful in our understanding, uh, not only of theology proper, but also of God's effects, that is, in terms of, of, of the, um, uh, the plan of redemption. And what that what that entails, and uh, there there have been there are several ways to uh, to prove I think from the text that there has been uh, a covenant an eternal covenant uh, between Father and Son, um, and two of those two of those texts I have here would be John seventeen the first five verses. And uh, then also John seven six and John seven six actually John seven sixteen and John seven sixteen echoes a lot of the language that's found elsewhere in Scripture. It's all over the place, so it, it's not a unique text. These are just texts I've 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 decided to look at as kind of an initiating starting point for the 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 biblical theology of 
of the of the Pactum Salutis. So, if you look at uh, John 17, the Gospel according to John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, we read there, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, of course, this is the high priestly prayer, and he's addressing his Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. End quote. That's from the New King James Version. Finishing the work is is a relatively large theme in uh, the Gospel according to John. And um, it really crescendos in what Jesus says uh, right before he gives his or commends, commits his spirit to the Father on the cross. It is finished. All right. And that... that that phraseology there in John 19 uh, needs to be connected to the other instances that happen prior that are said prior to that, especially here in the high priestly prayer. Um, that that phrase "it is finished" is a declaration of the accomplishment of the covenant of redemption, the, the finishing of the work the Father gave Jesus Christ to do. So just take a few notes uh, here in John 17, verses 1 through 5. The Father gives the Son a people, all right? The Father gives the Son a people. We would we would say that's the elect, right? The, the elect people of God. You see that in verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh, the Son authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And then you actually see it again in verse 6. We didn't read to verse 6, but verse 6 says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. All right. So that shows up, that that kind of language shows up in verses 2 and 6 and throughout, really. Um, there are conditions implied here uh, to redeem this people. We see that in verse 4, which says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work. God the Father gave God the Son work to finish. And the Son is sent into the world incarnately, uh, to do that, to perform that work, to finish that work. We see that in, in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then, of course, the Son, it is declared, finishes that work. That is, he meets those conditions. Um, and we see that in verse 4, and, of course, the climax of that in the language found in, in John 19 as well. John 7.16 is another place, and, and like I said, John 7.16 is, uh, it's just one text of many. It's repeating a lot of what's said elsewhere. Jesus uh, is, is talking here to um, the Jews uh, who are obviously in his presence, um, and he, he, he's, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of oogling, saying, how does this man know letters? Uh, having never studied, right? So how is he so astute, having never been formally educated, right? And Jesus says to them, and we, we know that, of course, Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. And so Jesus is prophet in his incarnate human nature. He is receiving direct, immediate 
revelation from God. This is called the uh, theology of union in scholastic theology, Theologia Unionis, um, and it's the theology that Christ has uh, in his incarnation, um, and uh, that's that's actually been one of the ways that the communicatio idiomatum has been understood by Protestants, not by Roman Catholics, um, but by Protestants, specifically the Reformed Protestants. Um, uh, Richard Muller has a very good section on that in the first volume, I believe, of post-reformed reform dogmatics, uh, post-reformation reform dogmatics, that four-volume set that's almost impossible to find. Um, Jesus answers them, and he says, my doctrine is not mine, you know, I'm receiving revelation, but his who sent me, okay, so my doctrine is not mine, Jesus says, it's the Father's, the Father's giving it to me, um, and the Father sent me to teach it, to, to, that's what doctrine is, it's teaching, so to proclaim it, to teach it, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. So the point here is just to say the Father has sent the Son, and he has sent the Son to proclaim a particular doctrine, uh, a teaching, if you will. And that is, of course, the gospel unto salvation. Um and, and really not only to proclaim it, that is true of, of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus had a, a teaching ministry, obviously. He taught as one who had authority, contrary to the Pharisees, scribes, and, and Sadducees. Um, but, but Jesus himself is the full revelation of God, right? And, and so not only what he says, but also what he does is the full revelation of God. It is, you know, as, as Hebrews 1 points out, Jesus is the express image of, of the Father's person. Um, and so um, those are just a couple of texts. Again, this is not an, an exhaustive, you know, biblical theology of the covenant of redemption. Those are just some entry points, right? So the covenant of redemption, pactum salutis, those are terms that don't show up in Scripture. Um, but the, the, what the pactum salutis is, what the covenant of redemption is, that is an agreement between father and son before the foundation of the world, uh, for the son to be sent into the world to accomplish redemption, that is taught in scripture, it's made necessary in scripture, and if you put a name to that, it's the covenant of, of redemption. So it's just putting a name to that which is, it's putting a title or, or, or a moniker or nomenclature to that which is revealed in the scriptures. And I would say not even just implied by the scriptures is expressly revealed in the scriptures in places like John 17. Now, there are some, you know, I want to relate this back to our theology proper discussions. Um, because you think about this idea of a covenant being made in eternity past, and already you have a difficulty because you're thinking of in term in temporal categories, right? A covenant being made. Well, of course, we can't understand that as as being univocal language, insinuating that God has in eternity past at some point, which makes no sense. That's nonsense. Formed a covenant in Himself. That's that's not what what is what is being said there in a univocal sense. It's just to say that there is any an, an eternal determination. Um, uh, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that this this plan of redemption, uh, and and that this plan of redemption should should come to pass. All right. So already we're edging toward language of decree, and so we're going to talk about that here in a moment, because that's going to help us understand where to locate, you know, in our language, 
the covenant of redemption. Um, but so that's but that's not the only issue. There are other issues, of course, right? Because a covenant is usually articulated as an agreement between two or more parties. And um, and 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 sometimes it's articulated in terms of a suzerain and a vassal. Uh, that is a, a higher king and a lower king or a lower ruler uh, and a higher king imposing certain stipulations on the lower ruler and then also providing rewards for meeting those stipulations and and curses or punishments for failing to meet those stipulations. So uh, this is how divine covenants really work. It's God imposing his covenant. God never um, relies on the will of Abraham, for example, for Abraham to, you know, enter into covenant with God. God just says, this is the covenant that I'm making with you. So he's, he's, he's the suzerain, he's the high king, and he's imposing a covenant along with its conditions, rewards, curses upon the lower party. That is the creature in the Abrahamic covenants case. It's Abraham and his descendants and uh, and that's and that's generally the pattern of of the biblical covenants, um, and so you you move that pattern back into the Trinity, into the Godhead, and certain problems arise, because all of a sudden you're, you're talking about uh, God determine God the Father determining something which then God the Son has to ascend to, and not only ascend to, but uh, agree with. And that seems to imply three distinct wills in the Godhead. So that's one main theological problem with the covenant of redemption. We're going to try to untangle some of those issues. Uh, another one would be the an eternal covenant seems to imply the, the pre-existence of that which is not God along with God, namely a covenant, right? So that that... Now, now we have to work on on where to place the covenant, how to understand the covenant, because nothing nothing has existed from eternity past but God, right? There's nothing other than God which has existed alongside God. It's only been God, right? Until God, of course, created and brought creation into being, which does not imply a change in God. But it applies the uh, the the bringing of creation into into being out of nothing, and um, and so uh, you know at once there was at, at one point, and this is imperfect language, of course, because we're bound to chronological language, language of discursion, process, etc. But there was a time at which creation was not right to borrow the uh, uh, to to reappropriate to God's glory the the perverted notion of the, the the Arius was trying to get at with with Christ right that there once was a time when when Jesus was not is is what the when the son was not that's what the Arians used to say well I reject that and instead I'm saying there once was a time when creation was not and which is of course true in a very improper and um imprecise sense because obviously before creation there was no time there was only God and so, uh, when you talk about a, a covenant existing prior to creation, eternally in the past, where does that, how do we understand that covenant, right? How do we understand that covenant and, and its pre-existence, so to speak? We're going to talk about that here in a moment. So, there are, there are all sorts of, of theological problems, uh, Trinitarian issues, what seem to be uh, contradictions between the Pactum Salutis and an Orthodox Trinitarian theology, but I, I want to show 
here in this last part that that's not the case. And that's because we have to understand the Pactum Salutis theologically. That is to say, we have to understand the Pactum Salutis. It's a biblical theological category oftentimes, and so it's 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 a result of of of, of exegesis and um, and uh, you know looking at the text as a whole and and drawing conclusions, etc. So the Pactum Salutis is is a a biblical theological category um, and. But I think that we need to we need to interpret Scripture, um, not as if we're tabula rasas coming to the text without any sort of theological presuppositions or any sort of theological assumptions being made. Uh, I think we need to interpret the Bible theologically. We need to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture, particularly in this way. We need to interpret the economy that is God's works in light of what Scripture says about God himself. And so we need to understand the economy, its relationship to God, in light of what Scripture clearly states uh, ontologically about God, right? And so we need to have theological interpretation of the Scriptures. There's nothing new about that approach. This is, this is the age-old way of doing biblical uh, interpretation, biblical exegesis. And, and the, the Pactum Salutis, the Covenant of Redemption, is, of course, no exception. Um, so I'm going to apply some, some systematic theological categories that we, would, that, that, that we would already, you know, hopefully agree on. And the first is divine knowledge. How do we understand knowledge in God? Um, and, um, and first and foremost, I just want to say that we have to understand God's in, in light of divine simplicity self-existence, etc., infinity, we have to understand God's knowledge as being one with his divine essence, all right? So God's knowledge is one with his essence. God's knowledge is his essence. His essence is his knowledge, all right? Um, but then we say that God has, God is omniscient. He's all-knowing, which means that God has knowledge of all things. And, and, and Thomas Aquinas, in his discussion of God's knowledge, he says, and we would all say this as well, um, unless you're, unless you're an open theist or something, that God has knowledge of particulars, that is of individual things, in created things, right? Particular created things. God has knowledge of particulars. Um, and, um, and, and so the question becomes, okay, uh, if God has knowledge of particulars, how does he know those particulars in such a way that we do not make the mistake of compromising divine simplicity, we do not make the mistake of compromising infinity, you know, asserting some kind of quantity in God. You know, like humans know, th know particulars in a particular way. Like we have distinct ideas in our minds that um, are, you know, are the, uh, are really representations of the essences of things. And so there's, they're, Facts in our minds are really distinct, and we have to switch from one fact to another, and we, we know discursively like that. Um, God doesn't know like that. That's not the way in which God knows particulars. That's the way in which we know particulars, but that's not the way in which God knows particulars, all right? Um, and I would say that the way in which God knows particulars has to go back to his knowledge of himself. The, f the first thing that we need to assert and affirm is God's natural knowledge. That is God's exhaustive knowledge of himself. Um, and then the next thing we would want to say is that God is infinite goodness. That's just what God is. God is 
infinite goodness. He is the highest good. He is maximally great and good and perfect. And he knows that goodness because that's himself exhaustively. This is God's exhaustive self-knowledge. He knows himself. He knows through himself. He does, his knowledge doesn't depend on other things. So we don't say that God knows through this or that thing, whereas creatures know through this or that thing. Like, um, I know scripture through, um, you know, the Bible, the text, the actual opening the Bible and reading it. I, I have to use, I know, my knowledge is contingent. It, it depends upon and relies upon other things to be what it is. With God, we say that God knows through himself. God doesn't know through things. So that's one way in which we would deny that God knows particulars. He doesn't know particulars through the particulars. He knows the particulars through himself. In other words, he knows his effects, the works of creation, etc. through himself, not through those things. All right, this is very hard for us to, 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 to understand um, because we, we are so used to... Uh, knowing particulars through the particulars. And God doesn't know like that. Um, And because God knows through himself and God knows himself exhaustively, therefore we would say he knows all particulars. Now you wonder, what's the connection? Why do we say that God knows all particulars through his self-knowledge, infinite self-knowledge? Because he's infinite, right? And so thus he has infinite self-knowledge. Um. And we would say that he knows all created things, particulars, through that self-knowledge. How does that follow? Well, you have to have an ontology of being. You have to have an ontology of of goodness and what that entails. Um, Particulars participate in God's goodness. To the extent that particulars exist, they participate in the goodness and existence of God. To the, exist, uh, to the extent that, that, that being ex- that, that a, a thing has being, it participates in, in, in existence, right? It participates in the existence of God. And we would say that it does that analogically. It doesn't do that univocally. It's not as if, you know, existence, uh, created existence is part of God, or if it's really like sharing in a piece of the divine essence. This is not pantheism or penentheism. Um, but goodness in God and goodness in creation are proportionately analogical. Um, and so to the extent that something exists is the extent to which it is good. And that's also the extent to which it imitates God. It reflects something of the nature of God, i.e. the nature of God's existence, right? And so in virtue of God knowing himself, he knows all things that are good or all things that would participate in in goodness or existence. Um, and Aquinas has a long, drawn-out conversation on the knowledge of God in both the Summa Theologiae and the Summa Contra Gentiles as well. It's very helpful because it, it explains how God uh, doesn't know like a creature knows, and, and it explains God's knowledge in a way that does not comprehi- compromise other very crucial, essential uh, things that we say about God. Um, you know, namely, especially infinity and simplicity. And so particulars can be said to be in God, but in a particular manner. They're in God virtually, right? They're in God virtually, whilst not imminently or formally. And this goes back to uh, another important discussion on the proportionate, um, the principle of proportionate causality, that every cause must have its effects 
in itself in some way. A cause cannot give what it does not have. Now, because we're, we reject pantheism and panentheism, we do not say that God has his effects um, imminently, nor does he have his effects formally. He has them virtually. That is, they're in God, and as far as they are good, and he, they are good, all existence is good, we're not Gnostics, um, then they were were in God virtually. Uh, and you can think of virtual possession in terms of knowledge. Knowledge, um, you know, I know how to um, to to write a book. Uh, the The effect of the book that I write is in my mind, but it's obviously not like spatially present in my mind because then I would have a book in my head, right? Like that. <laughs> so, what way is my effect? Are my effects in me? And and we would say in terms of knowledge, they're they're in the subject virtually. And and similarly with God, albeit all of this language is to be understood analogically, not univocally, so just caution that as well. But all this does is it just preserves the divine attributes that all the people in the conversation on divine simplicity right now would actually agree with. And so we want to make sure our theology is consistent with what, you know, the other things that we say uh, about God. Theology at one point needs to be consistent with theology at more fundamental levels and points, right? So that's what we're trying to do here. Um, and so we need to understand that uh, and apply that, the, the way in which God knows, to God's, um, to well, to the covenant of redemption, but to God's decree. I'm going in kind of a logical pattern here. Um, so the way in which God's decree, what God is going to do or what God has decreed to do, the way it's in God is not through separate individual particulars, you know, just kind of floating around in God's head as universals or forms really distinct from one another. Um, the, it's in God virtually, um, and it's in God in virtue of his goodness and perfection and, um, and, uh, and so on. So, um, so what I think we need to do at this point is talk about how the covenant of redemption relates to all of this. The covenant of redemption needs to be understood decretally. Um, the covenant of redemption needs to be understood decretally. The covenant of redemption is a decretal covenant. We say that God's decree is eternal, right? And we need to understand uh, the covenant of redemption as included within the divine decree. Um, and we also need to understand the divine decree as the object of a single subject, of a single knower, right? Not, not the object of three different knowers, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need to understand the decree, or, or actually the contents of the decree, we might say, as the, as the, as the object of a single subject, that is, of God God's knowledge, which, which is which is one with his divine essence, subsisting in three distinct modes or relations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, okay, so that should help to kind of understand, you know, it's we're getting now to the point where we can relate the covenant of redemption to our theology proper and understand it contextually within the framework of the doctrine of God rather than, you know, compromising the doctrine of God with our understanding of the economy, namely the unfolding of the covenant of redemption. 
<clears throat> so we understand the covenant of redemption as an article of God's decree. There's only one decree. It's not three decrees in each person. It's one decree with, you know, that is that is one with one essence and it subsists that one essence, which is one with God's knowledge and decree, etc., subsists Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'd say this of the will as well. The divine will the div and the divine decree are one. All right, so those the, those two things are one and are themselves the divine essence. And so that divine essence, which is the will, the decree of God, subsists in Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, according to our language, conceptually, we make distinctions between God's decree and God's will and God's knowledge and God's power, etc., etc. But really, ontologically, they're all one in the divine essence. We don't want to introduce real uh, division, partition, uh, real distinctions in God. If there are any distinctions uh, that we make uh, in the divine essence, they are conceptual distinctions, or at at you know at the most we would say they're formal distinctions, which which you know in that case the the attributes differ in definition, but really in terms of how we articulate them. But really in God, you know they're they're indistinguishable. Um. So okay, uh, the covenant of so to summarize what I want to what I want to say is that the covenant of redemption is 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 in the decree. It's we could say in some respects it's one with the decree. The decree is one with the will. The will and the decree are one with the divine essence, and that one divine essence right subsists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So already we should see that when we say the Father sends the Son. We are not saying that the Father has a distinct will by which he sends the Son, and then the Son has a distinct will from the Father by which he agrees to do what the Father has told him to do, right? At extra, that's how we talk about these things, um, but at intra, that's not what's happening, all right? There's no, there aren't different wills among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, and, and that so how do we explain that, right? So how do we get away from three distinct wills? I mean, we've articulated divine simplicity to some extent. We've applied that to the covenant of redemption, God's decree, etc. Now, how do we justify saying that the covenant of redemption, the Father sending the Son, the Son being sent to the Father, etc., are not are not words or phrases that that imply separation of will in the Godhead? And that gets us to the discussion on inseparable operations. Inseparable operations is a doctrine that is much less talked about now and is key in understanding how we can appropriate um, how we can appropriate um, the covenant of redemption in terms of theology proper. Okay, so uh, the work of the covenant of redemption is a single operation. It's a single operation. It's not. It's not several operations. Um, it's not several operations belonging to, uh, you know, the persons. Right. It's not as if there are different operations per each person. Right. Um, and so the work. Of, the, the work of the covenant of redemption is a single operation not several operations belonging to each person of the Trinity. And I've employed here uh, Adonis Vidu, who's written a helpful book 
called The Same God Who Works All Things, um, and it's on the very issue of uh, the inseparable operations. And he says this, and this is, this is within the context of the Incarnation. He says, The Son retains his divine operation inseparable from the Trinitarian operation. So it's one operation. But he adds on a human operation that remains essentially his. And there he's talking about the assumed, the operation that goes along with the assumed human nature. And then he says, while being energized from the divine side. So the divine nature energizes, as it were, causes and determines the human nature. And then he says, thus what remains peculiar to the Son in his incarnate activity is precisely the personal mode of action, precisely as Son. But this, but this, it is important to note, does not constitute a distinct operation, right? We don't, want to, we don't want to say the Father has an operation, then the Son has a different operation, which would obviously imply two distinct wills in the Godhead. There's not a dis, there aren't distinct operations, or there's not a distinct operation in the Son contra the Father. There's only a distinct, he says, he continues, there's only a distinct mode of the same operation coming from the divine nature, which instrumentalizes the human nature. That's the same God who works all things, page 82. All right, there's only one edition of that book so far, so that, that page number should hold strong depending on, uh, not, it, it doesn't matter. So you'll, if you have a copy of it, that's where to find it, page 82. Um, now what's being said there is that though there's one operation, it can be distinguished among the three persons of the Holy Trinity modally. Not really, which would imply three different distinct operations, but modally, in accordance with the modal distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in other words, the economic work of God, these operations we're talking about here, is, is they're the same. It's the God's, God's doing, God's working the same thing, right? All of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working the same work. Though that work or that operation can be modally distinguished according to the relations of origin. The relations of origin just are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The peculiar properties mentioned in the confession just is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what the peculiar properties are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, what we need to do is we need to apply that doctrine of inseparable operations to the covenant of redemption. If we consider the covenant of redemption as a work of God, right, as an effect of God, then I think we we are, are on better grounding. It's something that flows from God, right? And so it's it's economic, oikonomia, not theologias. And that's another distinguish, distinction we need to make. We need to distinguish between theologia on the one hand, which is God in himself, and oikonomia, or economy on the other. And this used to be the distinction, by the way, that was employed prior to the whole economic imminent trinity distinction that, that's now made oftentimes. And you see that in Bruce Ware and others, that there's an there's an imminent trinity and an economic trinity. That's a dis, it's a it's distinguishing God is what it's doing. Instead of that, the the better distinction I think would be theologia and oikonomia. So Theology, which is God himself, and then economy, which is God's effects. We always need to keep, that's the creator-creature distinction there. 
right? We need to be very, we need to be very consistent in applying that distinction as we proceed with our theology. So this is God in himself versus God's works. Well, not verses. I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to say that, but it's it's God in himself as distinguished from God's works or God's effects. Um, the economy is not God. God is not the economy. And when the economy comes into being, i.e. creation itself, God does not change. Creation does not act upon God to affect any change in God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, regardless of whether or not creation exists um, and so this is a very important distinction to make. Um, you don't want to read the oikonomia back into the divine essence, right? And, and an example of that would be to say that God creates, and then as a result of the creation, there's a change in God, namely that God has really moved from, you know, being not creator to creator, that there's been some kind of retroactive effect, uh, rebounding effect from creation back to God as a result of, of God bringing creation into being. And, and that's how, you know, create, creatures create. Uh, that's, the, that's the relationship between creatures and their effects, right? A potter makes a pot of clay, and there's been a change in the potter as a result of him bringing that particular effect about. But that's not how it works with God, because God is um, immutable, God is infinite, God is simple, uh, and as a result, creation can produce no rebounding effects upon the divine essence. So we always keep that distinction in mind, theologia and oikonomia, theology, economy, God in himself, God's effects. The Father sending the Son, all right, the operation of sending, all right, which is, which is something God has determined to do before the foundation of the world. Um, so think in terms of God's knowledge and decree. Um, the sending, as it actually as it actually goes, as it actually unfolds, you know, the Son is, is conceived by the Holy Spirit of the womb of the Virgin Mary and, you know, incarnately brought into the world. Um, that sending of the Father, uh, the... the you know, of the son by the father is, is economic. That's it. That's a, that's a work of God. That's something God is doing or does. God sends the son and it's a single operation. It's a single work grounded in the eternal decree. In other words, God has determined before the foundation of the world to do this. And that relates, that relates to the covenant of redemption. But this work can be appropriated, all right? This work can be appropriated um, in uh, according to three distinct modes, namely Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So it's one work, but it's one work appropriated according to distinct modes. In terms of the covenant of redemption, we're thinking Father and Son especially, all right? So one work, redemption, appropriated to Father and son in special ways or modes. And so that's, you know, you're getting to what we normally call the covenant of redemption at that point. But the covenant of redemption is is growing out of a proper understanding of the doctrine of God, the and the the, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of of God's knowledge, how God knows 
God's decree, the inseparable operations of the Trinity. It's growing out of that. We're not using, and the other way to understand the covenant of redemption would be to say that the covenant of redemption informs our understanding of God in himself. And I think that's where we get into problems is because we are, we are actually taking a work of God and then we're understanding God predominantly in the terms of his works or his effects. Instead, we need to understand the covenant of redemption as growing out of, as, 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 as resulting from who God is more fundamentally. And so I think what would be helpful to say at this point is there are there's one agency. This is one of the things that, that Adonis Vidu says in his, in his book that I just mentioned. There's one agency uh, which performs one work, and that one agency subsists in three agents, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then the one work performed by the one agency is appropriated along modal distinction, distinct, uh, modally distinct lines, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, so, in other words, uh, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinguished according to the relations of origin, and then the one work of, of, the, one, of the one agency of God, which is God himself, uh, is, is able to be distinguished according to the mode in which, or the modes in which, that one agency subsists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, I hope that makes sense. Um, if it doesn't make sense, I would recommend two books. Uh, Trinity and Creation by uh, Dr. Richard Barcelos and uh, The Same God Who Works All Things by Adonis Vidu. Now, before we close out here, I would like to read a quote from Richard Barcelos in that book, Trinity and Creation. Page 87, he, he interacts with Giles Emery here and he says, Richard Barcelos says, the phenomenon of attributing distinct external works to individual persons of the Trinity has a technical name. It is called the doctrine of appropriations, he says. Here is what it asserts, and now he's quoting Emery. The attribution of an essential reality of a divine action or of a created effect, common to the three divine persons, to one person in a special way. That language right there applies to how we should understand the covenant of redemption. We understand the Father as sending. The Son is being sent, right? And then we could we could add the Holy Spirit into that equation, the Holy Spirit given as a gift to God's church, right? The helper, the great paraclete. Um, so, um, so in light of what Emory says there, this is the attribution of an essential reality of a divine action, covenant of redemption, or of a created effect, creation itself, everything in creation, the works of providence, uh, etc. Um, uh, a divine action, right? And if we put the covenant of redemption within the category of a divine act or a divine action, um, we can say it's eternal, right? It's, it's, it's determined in eternity past um, because it's, it's an article of God's decree, right? And of course, this is all analogical language here. We need to make careful distinctions. Um, but we can also attribute the particulars of the covenant of redemption to, uh, to, to the persons of the Trinity in special ways or modes. So it's, the covenant of redemption is one work. It's a divine action. Uh, that one divine action can be attributed or appropriated 
to Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, respectively, right? One agency, three agents, or one work, um, you know, modally uh, distributed or distinguished among three, the three divine relations or the three divine modes, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the, 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 the divine essence existing in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and those persons are, are modally distinct. Those relations are modally distinct. And as a result, we can appropriate the one work and one operation of God, the one divine action, i.e., in this case, the covenant of redemption, that's fulfilled by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's fulfilled by the Godhead. Yet, the particularity or the peculiarities in the covenant of redemption that we talk about, the Father sending, the Son being sent, the Holy Spirit being given as a gift to the church, um, those, those distinctions can be made. And they can be made because we understand the doctrine of appropriations. That is, that's just the one work of God, the covenant of redemption, the one, the one, um, the one divine action uh, being appropriated in a special way, to use Emery's words, to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One work um, being appropriated according to the, the, the relations in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, hopefully, <laughs> I know there's a lot there, um, but hopefully uh, it, the, the brunt of it makes sense. And I would just recommend, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do builds on previous episodes that I've done. So I'd recommend watching the Primer on Divine Simplicity. I think that helps. And, and, and watch that first and be sure to be consistent you know, in light of divine simplicity, divine immutability, divine infinity, self-existence, aseity, be sure that when you think of, you know, the, I, I would, you know, when you, when you think of the covenant of redemption or anything that, that, that issues from God, that you would, that you would think about that in light of the more fundamental aspects of theology proper, divine simplicity, infinity, immutability, etc. All right, aseity. And then, and then work off at, at that understanding of who God is fundamentally and, and work that into the rest of your theology. So instead of working, you know, soteriology back into the doctrine of God, work the doctrine of God into your soteriology, okay? That's what I would leave you with. Um, I know that there's a lot here, and you might have to watch or listen to it, you know, multiple times, but, um, but that's what I would leave you with. That's a parting thought that I would leave you with. Do not work creation back into God. Creation can tell us things about God, but creation and 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 what is proper to creation, change, right? Uh, partition, uh, plurality, uh, you know, different things, particularity, etc. should not be worked back into God. Rather, God needs to uh, be worked into our understanding of his effects. All right, so do your theology in an orderly fashion. Start with the fundamentals, theology proper, who is God, and then in light of that, do the rest, okay? And I think that's what's important here. That's what I tried to do here. I tried to start with, uh, you know, we defined the pactum salutis and all of that. We looked at the, some issues that it, that it brings, but then we, we started talking about theology proper and how we really need to understand the pactum salutis in light of these fundamental of these fundamental. Uh, attributes uh, that we that we 
uh, articulate in our theology proper. So hopefully that's been helpful. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.